discussion today and i will uh, start by inviting all our panelists to give a short exposition of how their work relates to the modern day and how they see themselves as contributing to the solutions that we want indic feminism to give so aditi i will start with you you have been patiently listening to all of us and i will start with you so what is your idea of a contemporary paradigm for indic feminism Thank you, and uh, that was what an enthralling discussion. So um, I, I will start. So sticking to the theme of the Itihas and Puranas, I think one example that we can look to is is Draupadi, right? So when she is uh, when they attempt to disrobe and, and, and molest her in the uh, in, in, in the in the palace, and she uh, rightfully calls out the Atharma that none of the court elders, none of them are are abiding by Atharma. Uh, she is let down by her own husbands, uh, but after she has, uh, after she has herself rectified the the, the situation, she is given uh, boons by uh, Dhritarashtra, and she asks for her husbands to be freed. And then he keeps offering her her boons because she he he knows that he's in a bad spot now, and and, and he's trying to to placate her. But after a certain point, she says, "I will not ask for any further boons." my husbands themselves will, will rise for dharma and basically that we will do it, uh, do it ourselves. And what that gives us is a few elements for I think what an Indic framework for feminism is. One is that the root is always dharma or, or loka sangraha. And but what we mean by dharma is that which upholds, not just the individual's life, but the, not just uh, one's community or one's nation, the entire society, all sentient beings and the cosmic order itself. So it's very, it's very holistic. Um, and that means it's not rights-based, but you're looking at the entire, uh, the entire picture and, and the greater good. And it is also one is that again, is not based on entitlement because entitlement means that there's some perfect world that can be constructed and we all deserve to live there. And that is not the worldview that Sanatana Dharma has. Uh, samsara, the, the nature of samsara is it's, it's never going to be perfect. But what, uh, what dharma teaches us and what shakti is all about is you have these circumstances, how do you transcend them? Or in those circumstances, how do you bring about dharma? So it's, it's practical and it's not about destroying the system because it recognizes if you destroy something and something else is constructed, that too will have its own inherent problems. So dharma is about balance and when the pendulum has swung too much one way, you have to bring it in another direction. So that's where you can see that although in our tradition, there's so much reverence for women and all of that, it's undeniable that there's been a corruption and degradation of that through colonialism, through whatever factors you want to call them. We're in this in the state, and there is a need for a conscious effort uh, to, to uplift women and, and to remedy these situations. So recognizing that is not uh, contradictory to, to dharma, but it has to be done with dharma and loka sangraha and not just in an individualistic way. And then the last point I wanna make is we should neither apologize nor become apologists. 
Um, so we have nothing to apologize for about our tradition. Even if there are objectionable things within it, it cannot compare to the gap, the vast racism and misogyny in all the, you know, in, in, in the Western, Western traditions. Uh, and by the same token, we also do not have to become an apologist in the sense we do not have to defend 5,000 years of history and say that nothing bad ever happened. There, there may have been uh, things, but we have to be like, like the Hamsa. So the Hamsa, uh, like it, it, uh, it takes in the milk and leaves the water behind. So when you read the texts and, and things like that, and you look at our traditions, uh, you have to be able to discern what should be kept, what is relevant and what may have been relevant once, but is not now. And that by itself does not disturb our dharma or and anything like that. Exactly so this is the contemporary paradigm, Aditi. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the contemporary paradigm. Uh, I am sorry I interrupted you. I do have a question. Oh, no, I wanted to finish up and give everyone else a chance. So those, those are the two main points I wanted to make. No, but, but you know, I had a question for you, if you wouldn't mind answering it. Um, you know, uh, we are also looking at uh, getting women, young women especially, away from toxic feminism. So what advice would you have given to your younger self as a girl or as a woman? about what feminism should mean for them and how would that uh, segue with our topic of Indic feminism? Yes, so a few things. One is um, finding strength within yourself. So for me, my sadhana, my identity as a Hindu woman, knowing that within I'm divine or I have Shakti within me and that my potential is unlimited, I just have to manifest that. That has been the base of my, my confidence. When I started out, younger in life, I was very shy and I was insecure, but, but that by itself has given me a lot of confidence. Um, there's something interesting that a law professor of mine had said that it, it used to be had like ladies rooms and men's rooms, but then as part of feminism it becomes like women's room and men's room because we want equality and why should women have to be refined and be ladies, but men, so it became women's room and men's room. And he said, but you could equally have it be ladies rooms and gentlemen's rooms. Uh, and I think the mistake of Western feminism, first of all, look, I'm very sympathetic. Like I think, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently died. She was an amazing champion of women's rights. So I, I don't think we should just be anti-feminism. They identified the problem. They had some ideas about the solutions, but they were limited and short-sighted and not, are not sustainable. Uh, so I have sympathy for that. Um, but the point is it shouldn't be a race to the bottom. Uh, you should try to elevate men. And I, I worry about the loss of masculinity in society Absolutely. and bringing that back, being complimentary. How do we elevate ourselves as a society rather than how can we just be like the, the worst versions of ourselves? Um, and I think there's just one last thing I'd, I'll, I'll mention. There, was, there are studies done that show women are worse than men at negotiating for their own salaries or promotions. But when they're negotiating for their team, then they're actually more effective. Yes. Why? Because women are relationship oriented. And when it comes to the team, they'll, they'll do even better. And so I think that tells us let's lean into what makes us feminine instead of trying to get away from that and find ways of using our femininity to help us um, face those challenges we do face as women. And sometimes it's not equal, but rather than trying to make ourselves like men and, and go that way, let's try to elevate ourselves or take those strengths that we have as women and, and lean in towards that. That's a very good point, Aditi. Do not make ourselves as men. I talk to young women who tell me that even if feminists are being extra aggressive and uh, they're behaving badly towards men, 
men have done it for thousands of years so now it's the turn of women to do the same and like you said it's not a race to the bottom and we've got to uh, look for something positive rather than just trying to make those same mistakes that perhaps some men have made in trying to establish dominion over women so a uh, very interesting answer aditi and now i'll uh, move to deepa how would you see your work in the modern day context deepa Uh, apologies so um yeah so uh, as a as a student of vedanta so you know i you know just like aditi you know sadhana is like a big, has become a big part of my life but i'm also a mother of uh, one boy and two girls and i also as a part of my volunteer work i teach a lot of younger children and and youth so uh, i thought about you know what uh, what primarily as my daughter is stepping into go to college like what i want to tell her right and the uh, first thing is i want to tell her about shraddha you know we have a civilization and that's absolutely as you all know and rajiv malhotra is right now doing a series on non translatables in you know in from sanskrit to english shraddha is not blind faith right it is a it is a, an acknowledgement that we have a millennia of knowledge that's been passed down to us and all of us you know many of you spoke about this today uh, going with an open mind that there is some wisdom in this tradition that you should be able to take you know as a person and especially as a woman right and that means following you know some of the traditions and again it's not blind belief you know and if something doesn't work with you don't do it uh, but you know even something as simple as sitting in front of the altar and lighting a lamp and you know putting a bindi or whatever it is i think it the, the subtle aspects of our tradition are kind of being lost today it's all the you know we obviously we live in a very materialistic very gross kind of life but there are the subtleties of you know following some of these sadhana is the the power that it gives you so i i really feel that is something that uh, all all people but especially women and girls should uh, should adopt and uh, i also want to you know mention i mean sinu sinu joseph for example and nitin shree there bunch of people are writing it we have a culture of living in tune with uh, nature living in tune with the you know cycles of the moon the cycles of the season and i think those are uh, you know it's a wealth of knowledge and and my daughter by the way you know she's doing pranayama and it's really helped her the can be focused on the subtle aspects of what sanatana dharma offers us uh, in managing our life and managing you know our maximizing our potential so i think that is the second thing and finally i want to talk about atmanirbharta right you know of course modi ji is talking about it in the context of the country but i think as women having building that atmanirbharta early on um is going to not just help us be productive and successful but it's going to keep us so balanced in our lives right i feel like i have maximized my, i can maximize for my potential for myself for my family for my society but finding that atmanirbharta and and that by atmanirbharta it's not a physical depend obviously i'm physically dependent on many many things and you know i even to bring something in from the garage i need my husband i'm maybe financially independent you know there have been phases of my life where i was not working uh, but i have to be emotionally independent and that means you know building that in, inner resource in you that you can draw on you you are nothing phases you nobody can put you down because i know that shakti within me right so i would uh, say if there are three things i want my daughter and all young women to take it shraddha in our tradition it the arjavam or the you know focus on the integrated personality with a focus on the subtleties and finally on atmanirbharta i have a question for you uh, deepa 
based on what you had spoken about in your 8 minute talk so what advantages and disadvantages did hindu women have in achieving their purusharths and how does that apply today uh again the the context of uh, you know sanatana dharma like we talk, like i talked about and you also mentioned is this achievement of the purusharthas right um and obviously it's a, you know and one of the the swamijis that i follow he talks about the balance of the purusharthas so you're not uh, focusing it's like he, he the example he mentions is elephantiasis you know you have a large leg and you know you have a small body it doesn't work like that you have to be balanced uh, so from that standpoint i think the women of uh, the ancient india of course like sahana said and you know aditi said there was a period where i think we went through a lot of chaos and we kind of lost that uh, ability to balance it but prior to that i think there's a wealth of knowledge on how women uh, you know you see the rishi patnis for example they were heavily involved uh, you know even today i'm seeing you know people are watching there is a, the the wife of the president of the Sun, uh, sanskrit college in chennai she herself is giving talks i mean so i think the women were able to find that balance between doing their duty proceeding on their swadhyaya as well as following all of their you know the rituals that led to their own you know whether it's tantra or you know vedanta or purva mimamsa they were able to proceed in all of that so they did have that background uh, in spite of the physical you know arduous physical labor that was involved even putting food on the table was like you know hours i remember my grandma you know it was like a perennial thing you finish lunch you have to start looking for dinner uh, i think now we are at a huge advantage we can make use of you know leisure that we that is created by technology we can you know use the access uh, the disadvantage i think is um, i think the western feminism i i would say is the problem i don't think you know you see even today people in india they are they have a career but they are also you know very involved in uh, managing their life even creativity you see you know people getting run out i'm seeing seeing a lot of people going to rangoli contests and you know art and of course uh, classical arts uh, i i think there's a huge amount to be said in in the variety of traditions that we are offered if you don't want you know significant study you can go into devotion you can or you can go into arts uh, i think uh, maybe the one thing i would say in terms of disadvantage is the overwhelming knowledge so people do need to find their path and uh, there are gurus there are traditions who can help us um, i think being brainwashed by the western notions of feminism is causing a lot of i don't remember who mentioned it but there was there was studies done to say that people are western women are actually saying they they are less happier today than they were you know few generations back that is sad that is really sad and i think uh, i'm happy that uh, we are sharing our knowledge and i hope the you know organizations like the shakti and shaktitva and indic academy obviously we have to spread this uh, balanced way of living as a woman as a contributor to society you know but the word balance comes in everywhere and uh, my focus my academic focus is the arthashastra so it's so interesting the way kautilya always talks about a balance between all the purushas for him of course given he is kautilya and he has written the arthashas arth is most important but he never forgets to say that you must balance all the three excess of any of them is like poison and i think that balance is one of the main things that we take from our ideas about indic feminism shahana i would uh, i mean be very interested in hearing what you want to say about the modern context of education because it is really really very important right uh, sumeda so you know i see it uh, so let me just put it this way that when i look at the education of women today 
uh, I am happy. I'm happy that there are so many policies, government policies to help the girl child go to school. And uh, today we hear about the girls beating the boys all the time in the school living examinations in CBSE, ICSE. It's always the girls beating the boys. And uh, we see so many girls en enrolling in colleges, right? So no subject is out of bounds for them. Uh, they're training to be doctors, scientists, economists, pilots, bankers, and so on. Even they're in the army as well. But I see a big problem with the fact that the more the English literacy and the you know, English medium education, the more likely that these women are going to be disconnected from their roots and heritage. So I don't really rejoice as much as I used to do when I would hear about more and more women getting educated because I'm seeing what is happening after that, after the years of uh, education in uh, English medium uh, and you know, the kind of uh, what, what, is, what is in our textbooks. So we women today uh, in the meeting, by some quirk of destiny, we are all aware of the civilizational threat. Uh, in my case, despite my English education, I happened to come in contact with, uh, with the works of Dr. David Crawley, Navratna Raja, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Navratna Rajaram. And so somehow I, I, I went on the right quest. And Sumedha, you mentioned your mother and your grandmother. And for the others in this uh, meeting, them, other things might have put them in the path of decolonization. But for the majority of women students, if they study sociology or anthropology, social studies, or journalism, they are very likely to become leftists and averse to Hindu tradition. So they are going to be influenced by the atrocity literature. They will join the gang of self-loathing uh, Indians who will blame Manusmriti and Ramayana for the low status of women. So they are the ones who will make the case for uh, Holi uh, and Kummela causing uh, pollution as Neha was talking about. And they are the ones who will erase India out of all the discourses and make it about some big kind of South Asian, uh, you know, South Asia, generalizing certain things. So I think that the biggest change, uh, if I have to talk about the modern paradigm, is, to, is, is with the education system today. So unless the Indian education system is rooted in the civilization and the native languages are, are, are going to be taught, it's going to be very hard for the Indian woman of tomorrow to realize her Shakti. Shana, so, do you think that this decolonization of the mind that you are speaking to will lead to an Indic understanding of the feminine? Is that what you're uh, saying? Yes, I mean, if, there is, if it's done in a planned way, right? I mean, if, if we have the same education that we have today, the same textbooks that we are having today, then she is, uh, the girl of tomorrow is also going to be thinking of empowerment in the Western sense. So I think there's, a, there's an urgent need to save the Indian women from the education system of today which is yeah. taking, them, uh, taking them away from the root, which could make them realize their own Shakti. It's taking them away from that inner sense of balance and uh, contemplation. So I think we need to, uh, we of course have the national education policy, but the, I see a lot of problems with that. I think we need to think of courses in the education system, which will teach the Indic understanding of the feminine. We have to think of courses based on Kama Sutra, uh, Ramayana, Mahabharata, Gita, Yoga Vasishta. Most importantly, we have to find ways to teach the Sanskrit non-translatables, the words that uh, Rajiv Malhotra often refers to, and I think has also written a book about that. So I think we have to find, uh, so this is the modern uh, application of what I have written in my book. And I'll just skip it over here. 
in my uh-huh. own book of historical fiction called urnabi i do not use any translations i wrote it 10 years ago and i use sanskrit terms because i found it absolutely impossible to explain those sanskrit terms in english it led to a lot of fights and 13 rounds of editing so uh, <laughs> roli books was i mean it went crazy and i went crazy but i think that it was worth it So that's, that's amazing. I've also taken inspiration from you, Sumedha, because I also learned Sanskrit. I remember how you used to keep telling me, "Learn Sanskrit, learn Sanskrit on Facebook, right?" And yes. uh, then suddenly things fell in place, and I'm still learning Sanskrit. A whole new world opens up. So I have also been learning Sanskrit from a university in Pune, and an entirely new world of understanding the shastras has opened up. So I would really urge and encourage all of us and everyone who's listening to this webinar to learn Sanskrit, Tamil, Pali. all you learn your mother tongue and learn sanskrit right so that was uh, uh, did you conclude chana or did i interrupt you no no you stopped at the you interrupted me at the right place just when okay. i ended <laughs> oh, okay so uh, now uh, i would like to invite preeti to say what she wants to about the modern paradigm of traditional indian feminism thank you what a, what an amazing uh, A discussion we are having here it's so much food for thought uh, this is really such an important uh, problem in our society today um so uh, you know this whole uh, uh, what ails western feminism so it's almost two parts one is what's what's wrong with uh, western feminism and and how do we deal with that just universally and the other is specifically dharmic feminism and what that's about and how that uh can be a solution um i think that it's a uh, a a a problem that if we don't address now um it uh, it i think we're just going down a very slippery slope in the west as far as feminism is concerned and i don't know if all of you are aware of uh just the rhetoric and and the narrative out there uh you know sort of uh, equality of opportunity is becoming equality of outcome gender roles are um sort of uh, getting reversed uh and you know toxic femininity is now replacing toxic masculinity and in some ways it's is just as bad or if not worse because you don't expect that uh from feminism i mean feminism gets its power from its softness vulnerability openness sensuality sexuality you know erotic erotic uh, nature but in 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 a pure sense or you know the the sacredness of all of that if you remove all of that and say you know you need to be more like a guy and uh, you know act and think like one dress like one uh, to really you know get, have power uh, that's not only is that inaccurate because men don't like it it doesn't actually get you uh, very far i mean maybe in the short term it does but not in the long run and your essential essence uh, you're almost uh, sort of um uh, f- wishing away uh, you know i think um uh, the, the the beauty of uh, sanatan dharma and shakti specifically is you don't have to give up on who you are in order to be what you want to be in the world and i think that's a message that we need to um Uh, you know really propagate and, and uh, you know that's our narrative and, and that we need to uh, share with the world on how this ancient framework has worked and and does work i think um uh, you know with the work that i do one of the because i kind of see myself as an ambassador almost uh, of this ancient civilizational wisdom and kind of a bridge between the east and the west 
especially in, in this area, uh, we need to um, showcase our framework uh, to the world. Um, the, uh, one that, that says that Indian women is, are an embodiment of sort of this uh, divine feminism. I, I mean, I think at a time when the West is uh, really struggling to find their divine feminine essence and express it, uh, Indian women have, have um, held ground. I mean, look at an, an Indian woman. I, you know, they can be very powerful, but very aesthetic and uh, very feminine at the same time, because that's where uh, the power is in, you know. And I think that's a, an important message to drive home, like where your real uh, power lies uh, in. And um, you need to be secure in your power and there's no need to uh, impose it on anybody or to have to prove this. Um, I think true yoga is the union of the Shiva and Shakti within us and we all have that. So uh, I think that uh, one thing that's missing is, you know, when, when, when I look at Indian women or especially Dharmic women, we, we know our history, we're proud of it. We know this is a good framework. It has worked for us in many ways. It still works in India, but the, the issue is there's a gap between the reality and then the, the narrative out there in the West and the knowledge that the West has about us. And I think that's where we need to do better. So we need more thinkers and speakers and authors really propagating this and speaking about it on international platforms or any, any platform that you can get and let the world know, because it seems like even though this is the oldest civilization, oldest tradition, and yet the world seems to know the least about us. I think the world knows more about Islam, which is much more recent, uh, you know, good and bad, I suppose, but th then it does about Hinduism and th that, and we have ourselves to blame for that. You know, I think we are a, a peoples that uh, sort of hold this incredible knowledge, but, and we're happy to share when, when people ask, but we don't do it in a way that we are constantly saying, hey, this is our perspective. And we're not uh, pushing it on anyone, but, but it is a, a valid perspective and one that has stood the test of time, possibly the only one that has stood the test of time. So, so um, I ask you a question here, uh, Preeti. How can the world or uh, the West benefit from the Shakti framework? What ails Western feminism? And more importantly, what's at stake if nothing is rectified? Great question. And I think this is the, 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 the really the pivotal question. Uh, first is knowing that there is a problem. I think there's a lot of people in, in denial, especially the feminists, you know, about that there is a serious problem out there. Uh, there, there is a problem. Uh, you know, men are, uh, uh, sorry, women are uh, less happy today than they ever were, uh, ever were. And they have more rights today, but they probably feel less empowered than ever before. And why is that, you know, despite uh, in many ways, they're outperforming men on, on so many vectors, but yet, uh, you know, because I think they're losing a part of who they essentially are. Um, if we don't do anything, I really think this is a very scary road that we're uh, going um, uh, towards. Uh, this sort of gap uh, between male and female will increase. There is an incredible amount of resentment that is creeping up in men uh, towards this whole feminism thing uh, and they don't like it. And although most women don't identify themselves as feminists, uh, I think the feminists have the 
uh, the mic right now. They have the platform. Their voice is the loudest, and they are and they are loud, you know, in the West. And then you, of course, don't get me started on the the, the Indic feminists, as in the Marxist feminists, because their their voice is uh, neither here nor there. It's kind of very kind of a, a mixed up, you know, kitchery of different principles. It's very very scary stuff. Uh, and the West doesn't want to hear about that anyway. But I think it's it, if we don't do anything, what's going to happen is uh, the divide is going to get uh, uh, larger. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but there is a movement uh, in the West. It's I can see it happening in India and all around the world. But it's called uh, uh, MGTOW, I think. It's men going their own way. This is a real movement. It's a real thing. It's bad. Men are saying, I've had enough. I don't want to deal with this. I'm even scared to approach a woman. I don't want to get married. I don't want to get involved. I'm going to just go do my own thing. And this is happening and it's not good. I think at a time when we need to bridge. I you think know, what kind you of... say is that the stakes are really high. Therefore, we yes. need to put in a lot of work. I, I just want to circle back to Shahana for a moment because I think there was something interesting which she wanted to say a little bit more about, which was how did her views change? along with her research and her study, during your research, you found yourself, your your own understanding of yourself and of feminism changing. Would you like to say something about that? Yes, uh, Sumedha, I just wanted to mention about the, uh, you know, how disconnected we urban women are from the rural women. And uh, so knowing more, you know, what, what how the rural women think was uh, helped me to understand the divine feminine better and also helped me in decolonization. So I just wanted to mention this, uh, you know, this whole concept of Kul Devi, right? So uh, in the villages, you know, the, the whole, the family has a Kul Devta or a Kul Devi, right? And uh, so when I uh, got married, right, I have married a, a, a Rajput, as I said, so it's a Rajput family. So when I came to know about uh, this whole Kul Devi concept, so I, I started asking them, who is your Kul Devi? And they, they didn't know. They didn't know because they were also disconnected from their traditions they had taken to Arya Samaj. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, so then a whole journey started. I found out who is the Kul Devi. I found out where is her temple in Rajasthan. And in fact, just before the lockdown, I was planning a, whole, a, a trip there. But as soon as I can, that's something that I'm going to be doing. So I just wanted to kind of bring out this fact that, you know, when we when we connect with these things, these this is also going to tell you, uh, connect you with the with your traditions and the divine feminine, you know, find out who is your Kuldevi, who, which, who is your Kuldevta for, for your family, right? So I just wanted to mention that. Yes, and you know, you brought in a very important element of rural women. All of us here are urban women, but I have married into a completely rural, completely chota wow. gaon. It is just called <laughs> Machli Gaon near Gorakhpur. So we have a Kuldevi and my mother-in-law is not a literate, educated person in the way we understand it. But the amount I have learned from her about women, about the way women actually react and about their strengths and weaknesses has given me a completely new perspective on my very, uh, well, bubble-like urban existence. So that's an excellent point which came out. So, uh, so Hag, maybe you would like to give your inputs on a modern paradigm of Indic feminism. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about what Indic feminism looks you know, in a day to day. And I think that's a, a good framework because I think that as it's going to become very personal, certainly there's the importance of a larger framework and that's, it's a very big conversation, but on a day to day, to me, um, Indic feminism is, it's gray, it's humble, 
And for me, it's, um, it's kind of seeking wisdom through spiritual sadhana and introspection um, on a daily basis. And especially being an American born and raised in the United States, it's, it's also a constant um, struggle. And I guess it's not that different for women in India as well, because India was a colonized nation to kind of shed kind of the prevailing framework. And I'm not, and I agree with Aditi that not everything about Western feminism in my view is, is bad. It achieved a lot for a particular context. And so it should be an evolving you term. Know, so hard, I'm interrupting you, but my yeah. daughter has studied in the United States and uh, she listens to a lot of what I say. And this is yeah. exactly what she tells me. Why don't yeah. you say something which is good? Why don't you say, what did Western feminism do? I want to know about that because she experiences that in her life quite a lot. Right. And I, and I think that the examples that we've, I mean, of course, the framework was different. Um, but if we're living in this country, if we were denied the right to vote, regardless of what the root is, it would put us in a place that isn't freeing, isn't um, allowing us to live up to our greatest potential. So in that sense, I think that we can take what has worked and what was positive, if it has application in, in a dharmic view or in a dharmic lifestyle, then, then you learn from it, right? We have to be discerning. But the framework that I think that everyone has really touched upon um, that denies, and these are kind of more the negatives, that denies differences between men and women, that is very anti-male, it, the focus has become so much about everything being patriarchy that even when you try to point out something that gives a, a heterodox view, then it's, oh, well, then you've internalized patriarchy because certainly nothing can be redeeming um, in, this, in this culture that you're talking about. I think it also largely has judged the choices of women. And very often women are those who are judging. So if it doesn't fit the orthodoxy, especially when it comes to choices that we make about our family, choices that we might make about religious practices that we've talked about today, um, those have also been part of that framework and everything being framed as a right, as opposed to what, are, what is our responsibility as women. So on a day-to-day -day basis, letting go of that framework, um, for me, has actually released me from a lot of resentment, guilt, and anger. And I think Preeti touched upon this, that when um, that those things trying to be equal to men in a way that says that we're the same as men, doesn't, it denies what is beautiful and powerful about being women. So on a day-to-day -day basis, and I'm talking about just you know, how do you engage with your family? How do you engage with your colleagues at work? We make choices and compromises that work for us, whether it's outside the home or inside the home. It, we, if we shift, I have found shifting my perspective from it's my right or these are the traditional roles to this is the responsibility that from my capability and my capacity, I can give the best for this particular circumstance, whether it's the well-being of our family, whether it's a project that I'm working on at, at work. So invoking kind of a sense of seva, I think um, has also helped release that anger and resentment, tapping into the wisdom of elders. You know, I don't know how many times, I mean, now it's a joke because my kids might, I have two grown boys and 
Oh, I'm sorry. There seems to be a problem. Okay. While we wait for Suhag to come back on, Neha, maybe you can take over and tell us what is your modern paradigm of Indic feminism. Absolutely. So, uh, actually, uh, Sumedha ji, my work is only modern. <laughs> so, it... it uh, in so, Suhag is back. So, uh, Suhag, uh, maybe you can... Sorry, Neha. Shall we go yes. back to Suhag? Yeah. So Suhag, there was also a question which I wanted to ask you. What does your dharmic feminism look like in your day-to-day -day life? You're muted. All right. Sorry about that. I don't know where I got cut off. <laughs> so anyway, tell us what does dharmic feminism look like in your day-to-day? -day? Sure. So um, I hope I'm not repeating myself because I don't know when I got cut off. But basically it's about making those choices and compromises um, through talking with the men and women that surround us. It's shifting a perspective from rights to responsibility and evoking a sense of seva in all that we do, looking to what are our best capabilities? What can we bring that's going to serve the good of whatever context that we're in? Tapping into the wisdom of elders um, that, you know, so much of modernity is that we're on this like progression always towards something better, bigger, shinier. Spencerian point of view. Herbert Spencer has a lot to answer for. Right. And so, you know, I have found, and my kids make a joke about it, but I think that Haldi is the answer to everything. But that's just one example of how, <laughs> you know, in my case. <laughs> that we have, you know, we, we poo-pooed so much of what our great grandmothers passed yeah. on to our grandmothers to to everything else and really also recognizing that strength is not just physical and financial that strength comes in many different forms and that's where i think dharmic feminism and our stories have so much to offer and on a day-to-day -day basis it's i have two grown sons so it's role modeling for them that what does a symbiotic relationship look like? How do men and women engage with one another in a way that is contributing to the betterment of the family, of to one another, and to support one another in our spiritual growth? I think important factors for any framework um, that that you know we worked collectively on together or whether we're exploring it in our own realms, there needs to be psychological and physical safety a space to introspect. There needs to be a balance of choice and compromise and mutual respect. Um, and I'll just quickly touch upon something that I ran out of time for um, in my main remarks that go to these very factors, that where these factors are not existing for women, um, there are huge atrocities that occur. And part of the work at HAF has been giving voice to Hindu minorities where they're facing tragic human rights atrocities. And specifically the toll, the special toll that women face in places like Pakistan. So giving voice and, and lending um, sound and amplification to the stories of women and girls in Pakistan in the Sindh district alone, over a thousand girls are kidnapped, forcibly converted and married off to men two to three times their age annually. This is something that a lot of people don't even know about. You go to an average dinner party amongst friends and people don't know about it. That's where I think 
um, I see a responsibility as a woman. And I have men in partnership with me who are giving voice to young girls who simply because they are Hindu are suffering. So I just want to say just a few of their names and I'll end with that. But just in 2020 alone in 2019, Bharti Bai, 24 years old, kidnapped at her wedding ceremony. Mehek Kumari, age 15, was kidnapped. Rina and Ravina, two sisters, 13 and 15, kidnapped, converted, married off to men. And then the court says, well, they were 16 and, and eligible. So I think that women are well-placed not only to create this framework, but then to ensure that the women who are shortchanged of the dignity that Shakti offers, that we also partner in um, lifting all boats. Thank you, Sohag. And we must definitely remember the names of these women who have been so exploited. It's so very easy to brush all this under the carpet. And as you say, people like to ignore it. But we must remember them. We must remember their names and we must work on their behalves. Neha, what about your ideas of the modern paradigm of Indic feminism? Um, thank you, Sumedha ji. Um, and, you know, brilliant answers, all of us. Like, and we, we, I think we chat so much offline that we, you know, sort of converge often. So, if, you know, audience, if you're seeing some repetition, it's because we're working together. Um, so I think it's like, you know, for, my, for me personally, uh, Shaktita Foundation is all about the contemporary understanding, right? It's not just a theoretical framework, it's a nonprofit. And it was intentional in the, in the choice uh, that we made. We did not want to, like, there, there is so much work that needs to be done in terms of research, but we cannot stop there. Uh, because we've seen time and again that, you know, you can keep doing all the research you want and Jadunath Sarkar seven volumes of brilliant work is just sitting on the shelves gathering dust, whereas, you know, the, uh, um, you know, white women are taking over that mantle and, and uh, so basically usurping that uh, voice. So it has to be a constant, continuous exercise. And in that process, we will learn a lot because we haven't even began from the right place, right? The framework was wrong. The paradigm with which we analyze things are wrong. And in that sense, I will try to like slightly address some of the questions that came in. One question was about financial empowerment, right? Uh, my mother actually answered that question for me. And I was like, you know, confused for the longest time because I have been a very career oriented person since, uh, since I was a child. And, you know, all the Asian tiger parenting was live in action here. So, so career has been a very important um, aspect for my like pretty much a majority of my life and then uh, she and she, my mother was a, a financially independent woman as well so this one time like recently in fact I was chatting up with her and she says you know what the biggest con that people played on us the the colonists played on us was to convince us that we needed to go out and work and as a what do you mean? You were the one like, you know, basically parenting me to that, to make a career. And what are you saying? And so she goes, right, like, listen, when women went out to work, men did not step in to do the housework. And so now I'm dying in both places. Now I have to do seven, nine to five work. And I have to, I come, uh, come back home and I have to do this work. And this is with my dad who was, who actually loved cooking. So majority of the cooking was done by him, but still like she was still, she felt that. And she said, even in situations where you, let's say, you know, circumstances where husband loses a job uh, and the woman becomes the sole bread earner, the husband does not step in to take in the responsibility because the society did not naturally progress to this 
idea, right? It was imported. So the society was, uh, society looked at, like the Indian society looked at the West and thought, oh, women are working there and that is empowerment. Let me go out and do that. But they didn't question whether that was necessarily empowerment in their personal sense. And why is that the question? Because, see, this is, this is something that I often talk about. In a lot of indigenous cultures, especially Hindu culture, it, it, the, the entire paradigm of financial independence came from the uh, uh, sort of the assumption that the person who earns is the person who spends. And the person who spends has the power, right? So that's the Marxist analysis. So if the person who earns, uh, the person who spends has the power, which means if I want something and my husband is the sole earner, I won't have the money to go out and buy it. And that is absence of power. What they do not know or do not understand or don't want to understand is that in Hindu families, that is exactly opposite. It doesn't matter who earns, right? It doesn't matter whether husband earns, father earns, you know, son earns, whatever. It's the matriarch that actually gets the money. And this is why I say there is a patriarch and a matriarch. So in that sense, Hinduism tends to be a balance archy, for lack of a better term, we don't actually have a word. Um, so, so a lot of these concepts that we have internalized that we tend to, and we've spoken about this repeatedly, that a lot of these concepts need to be revisited in the first place. However, while we are doing this, as I said, like, you know, in my speech as well, there's a lot of clamor about all of this that can be easily debunked. But while the, you know, the elites that have the mic, so to speak, um, are, are creating this clamor with that mic, the real issues are getting brushed under the carpet. So uh, what the real issues of, of Hindu women in the society are not being addressed and they are not being addressed because there is this lazy analysis where everything is dumped on Hinduism and this is traditionalism and modernity is going to save us. Well, it doesn't, right? Half of the time it doesn't. And the, the basically this reluctance to even learn anything from our ancient traditions um, has led to a scenario where it's completely disconnected. I'll tell you another very quick example is that I was recently talking to a grassroots feminist who has been doing this work for almost 30 years in India. Um, she, she was telling me, she was talking about um, a, a policy where there was like a similar to like the policies that we were talking about, this particular policy was about female health, like reproductive health. So they had a contract from the government where they had to raise awareness about a certain, uh, um, you know, reproductive health issue within the families. And they wanted to, so the NGO came, her NGO came up with an innovative way of promoting that concept. So they sort of wanted to initiate a competition and now this is happening in rural India, right? So what they wanted to do was they wanted to name or give out the award in the name of a culturally relevant figure who happens to be a Hindu figure. Like, let's say, I don't remember the exact name, but let's say Lopa Mudra Prize, right? So now they knew that the villagers of that particular community were very connected to that celebrity, to that person, because they were in that. Oh, and I remember she wanted to name it after Rani Jhansi Ki Rani because it was in Jhansi. So they wanted to actually, you know, uh, give a Jhansi Ki Rani award, and that would have been very culturally relevant to that particular village. Uh, but they were told that they cannot do that by IS officers and, and the bureaucracy um, of India because this would be, you know, uh, religious and it would be communal to do this. So the, the level of toxicity that is making its way into even the day-to-day um, -day life, as I said, is it's extremely problematic. And all of this is because there is a bias 
from in the framework itself. So if we shift that framework, we can do wonders right? and we can bring out those voices and we can bring out those issues um, that, that are relevant for the contemporary woman. Mangal Sutra Neha, is not present for the contemporary Neha, woman. is there something that you've seen in your work, some pressing issue? As the president of Shaktatva Foundation, you've seen a lot of grassroots uh, events. So is there some pressing issue that dharmic women face which doesn't get appropriate attention? by Western feminists? There are thousands and thousands that I can name, you know, I can go hours and hours on this. One very, you know, simple example I will talk about, and this is actually, this is another uh, element where we sort of talk about Western feminism and its positives. So the positives that have been is that, you know, Western feminism has given us a place in say organizations like the UN. So there is like a, a recognition, there is commitment that we're talking about serious major dollars. Um, that are, you know, committed for the upliftment of society, um, on, especially like the females of the society. And we have to understand that we, even though Hindu culture itself did not actually have any sort of imbalance or lopsided lack of power for women, we were colonized twice. And we've had a thousand years of colonization, which means our society has morphed. It has adapted things that it did not belong here. It has come up with sort of, um, how should I say, responses to colonialism uh, that have now ossified as tradition. One example in, I read in Sahanaji's book, right, is that you know initially we find that there's plenty of evidence that women are not act actively being blocked. Uh, but as you know, the Islamic invasions came and, and women abduction of women, very similar to the kind that Suhagji mentioned in Pakistan, uh, we started seeing that in Indian society, the families became more conservative, right? And they, they said that, you know, we cannot risk you getting abducted on your way to school. So maybe, you know, this is not a great idea. With, with that assumptions, a lot of those things have sort of ossified as tradition, which not necessarily are tradition. So there is a need to kind of circle, like, circle back on that, go back to the text to understand what, which part is tradition and which part isn't. And when you do that, you uncover so many other issues um, that are still prevalent. You know, we've talked about, I've talked about a little bit about uh, the violence against women uh, and domestic violence, which is getting normalized because there is an assumption that it somehow has scriptural sanction in Hinduism where there's absolutely no evidence of that. Uh, there, are, there are other uh, social issues that are prevalent on the ground. Uh, one big example is, you know, uh, political representation of women. Um, political representation of women in India, despite the reservation system and despite all of these attempts, is a joke. Recently, um, there was a there is a Twitter handle that actually brought my this to my attention that the seats that were reserved for women candidates in Kerala municipal elections did not even have the photo of the woman on it. It had the photo of her husband. And so basically, they they're even they're, they're, like even though the pretense is that this is a woman reserved seat and the elected MLA, the name would be of a woman. The, even the canvassing is of the husband because then people know that it won't be the man ruling this. And, and so then the question becomes, right, is that really representation? Is, that, is she bringing anything to the table? And if that is so, then how can we counter that? But we don't, everything becomes, you know, brushed under the carpet of, no, this is traditionalism, regressivism, and whateverism. And so we, we don't need and actually enter into these, you know, uh, interesting questions. And similarly, you can see there are certain problems of violence against women uh, that, you know, every time the party where this a scandal emerges, let's say a rape scandal emerge from a political party, like a member of the political party, the women of that party will go quiet 
and the opposition party women will you know, suddenly become you know the, the ultimate feminists and then the cycle will keep reversing because because guess what every single party has their same uh, you know toxic masculinity uh, under the hood but they don't want to talk about it which is what i mentioned as political expediency so there are so many of these issues and we've lost the the ground uh, to bring out these issues because we have failed to decolonize we have our feminists have refused to even progress beyond second wave feminism, even on the Western paradigm. And any alternate voice is immediately dismissed as you know internalized patriarchy, as we saw in the case of Sabrimala. So we can't even actually air our views. So in my personal view, representation and violence against women remain the two burning issues. And a lot of times they're not highlighted because of because it's not politically expedient to do so. And one very big example is, is the in ex examples of abductions of non-Muslim women in Muslim areas, uh, whether it's Bangladesh, it's Pakistan, it's Afghanistan, it's been happening for generations. It's still happening and it's even happening in parts of India. And we're still seeing that, you know, being painted as communalism or whateverism um, and being completely dismissed. Thank you, Neha. That was again a very passionate speech. Uh, let me now give a, just a very small uh, dissertation on what I see as the work that I am doing and how it is relevant for today. So I, my focus is obviously the past. I read Sanskrit texts. Of what use is this? Why should I read them? And of what use is it to me or to anybody else? If I posit a framework of Varnashram, Dharm and Purusharts, is it of any use today? I would like to say yes. And I would like to say that we need to do a lot of work on this so that we can cast all these questions in the context that they were meant to be cast, in the context that our society understood it. We have so many problems centered about, around women. So many of you have spoken of it. What about the solutions? Not only do we need to cast these problems in the framework of Varnashram and Purushat, we need to also cast the solutions in that framework. So how do I put it in modern terms? What is the Varnashram Dharan? So I would say it is the occupational and educational matrix. And this occupational and educational matrix, how does it fit into the ashram system, especially Grihasti? So we look at solutions within the Indian Indic framework of family, community, and self-realization. But according to the modern interpretations, family and community and tradition are part of the problem. They are not part of the solution. We have to flip it around. And we have to make them part of the solution. So the modern rights and laws approach is burdening India with a lot of policies and laws which have had a questionable impact on society have often even been misused. Right now, Shahana, I am reminded of the discussion we were having offline, and you had asked me a very, very pertinent question. Could you share it with everyone so that I could speak about it in the midst of this uh, webinar? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, so uh, social organization has changed since the time the Dharma Sutras were written, and uh, so has economic organization. Uh, so Grihasti and uh, Grihasta Ashrama have been now recast in contemporary times in both these contexts. So I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yes, this is one of my most favorite topics. And Neha has touched upon it in short when, he, when she said that Grihasti in Hindu terms does not mean that the person who earns is the person who spends. So we have the four ashrams and 
some of our dhan sutras have talked of four ashrams but others have said that there is only one ashram which matters because everything else comes from there this is called ekashramnya and this ashram is obviously grihasthi so the nature of grihasthi has changed at the time the dhan sutras were written grihasthi was the economic and social fundamental pivot around which all of society and economy revolved remember this was pre industrial revolution the locus of economic activity whether it be agriculture weaving pottery artisans whatever it may be making of small weapons it was all inside the house things changed grihasthi is no longer the economic focus indeed it is no longer even the social focus of the way we are organized the way modern society wants us to move is that the individual is the focus of society rather than grihasthi so what have they said they have said things like betty friedens the feminine mystique where housework the household are the most boring useless and non self realizing kind of things to do so there is a huge resentment amongst women especially amongst young women related also to housework which also neha mentioned so this housework has become a raging issue when i talk to young women this is one of the major reasons that emerges for their anger they feel that indian tradition attaches women to housework absolutely indubitably and inescapably and there is no getting away from it so what revolution do i want i want a revolution amongst men let's share all the work of the grihasthi let it go back to the way it was where there was a grihapati and there was a grihapatni and they were you know the two wheels of a bicycle and the two of them moved in tandem and again who was the person who decided on the allocation of resources within the grihasthi in the in the ashram system in the grihastha ashram ashram system obviously the grihapatni whether it is what will be spent on food what will be given to ascetics what will be given as dan everything was decided so allocation of resources was decided by the grihapatni now i would uh, this is one of the things that i focus on i would like to rip replace uh, grihasti put grihasti back on the pedestal that it was and make it into a new grihasti not one which puts the um, you know the major uh, burden of child bearing child rearing and household work is on women let that change so that is what my modern paradigm my recasting of the dharma sutrik varnashram dharma and four purusharths would mean i would like the occupational and educational matrix to fit into the ashram system i would like grihasthi and the study of women and the occupation of women to segue into each other and i would like men all the men who are listening please take up the slack take up in equal work at home and uh, women in today's world since things have changed we live in nuclear families they can no longer really bear to carry the burden of grihasthi alone let's put grihasthi back into the center of society and economy sumedha i have a, a something to say here i feel that our wishes have been answered in the form of this lockdown because this yes. is the, it's, very, it is happening it is very, happening very very it's very like my husband is making rotis every day right and uh, the way the work is has got divided up so beautifully now because of this lockdown it wasn't there before so i think it's yes it's and uh, you know in fact uh, work from home if it becomes a real thing then maybe we will see grihasthi restored to the yes. way it was 
um, you know, in uh, times long gone when capitalism had not divided the factory from the home, the office from the home and created a huge new set of problems, care of children, care of the elderly, care of the sick. So it just created more problems than it could resolve. So, well, let's see. Um, let's see how it goes and how COVID and work from home impact on the new Grihasti, the refashioned and reimagined Grihasti that I would like to think about. So uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. A long two, two and a half hours, but absolutely fascinating. We have heard of practical aspects. We have heard of theoretical aspects. We have heard people arguing very strongly like Suhag and Neha about the practice, about what should we do for people, how we should not forget people, how we should not forget problems. And uh, Aditi gave us a background into the past. Deepa gave us a background into the Gyan Parampara. And Shahana gave us a background into not just the Gyan Parampara of the past, but also colonial and Islamic invasion. Preeti gave us an, a very balanced view of Western feminism versus Indic feminism. And she has really put things into perspective for the modern world and you know the way to kind of go forward. 